are jumping right back into continuing our Romans series. If you're wondering, Romans does end at some point. Uh, there is, uh, this letter does have a conclusion. We're just not quite there yet. Uh, stick through the end of this month and we'll be, uh, we'll be moving on to uh, another series beginning in June. But uh, we have the privilege of diving deep into Romans. We'll be in chapter 12 today. So if you want to uh, flip ahead and, and get there, that would be great. But I wanted to tell you about a, a Sunday school teacher. This Sunday school teacher was rather, I don't know, she had become rather uh, self-righteous and I don't know if pompous is the right word, but uh, anyway, kind of appeared that way to uh, some of her students. Um, one day, with her head held high, she's trying to explain about, uh, uh, about uh, what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. And so she's, uh, she's, she's kind of strutting back and forth in front of her class and holding her head up high. And, and she, uh, she asked the class, now class, why do you think people call me a Christian? And there was a brief pause, and then little Billy in the back raised his hand and said, probably because they don't know you. We expect people who go to church to be different. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain expectation in our minds that people who call themselves the people of God should act differently than those who don't call themselves, or who aren't the people of God, so to speak, right? But, but then, then we kind of get into this weird little place because uh, we have trouble identifying what exactly that really is supposed to look like. Uh, so we know that they're supposed to be different, but then when we start defining it, it starts turning into, I don't know, we, we, we tend to make up lists, I think. We have a, the, the church, I think, has a history through, through, uh, thousands of years. We, we make up lists, uh, of, uh, usually a lot of things that the people of God, uh, do not do. Right? Uh, those lists all the, all the, range all the way from the hundreds of rules that the, and the laws that the Pharisees, uh, uh developed for the, for the people back in the day. Uh, clear up to, I, I don't know, uh, something always comes to mind, uh, Rebecca's great grandmother used to sing the song, I think it was. Uh, I'll just try it, cause I never really sang this in my faith journey, but, uh, it was quite a, some people hop up and down all night. At the D-A-N-C-E, while others go to church to show their brand new H-A-T, they smear their faces with big globs of P-A-I-N-T, and then they laugh at me because I'm S-A-V-E-D. The implication, I know you had to spell a lot and it's Sunday morning, that's kind of, kind of difficult, but the implication is that a real Christian wouldn't go to a dance, wouldn't be vain about how they dress in church, and they certainly wouldn't wear makeup, right? That would just be wicked and evil. And that's, that's just a partial list. The church back in, back in the day, I think, had a whole lot of things that you couldn't do. Uh, we've, we've gotten pretty good at making lists to identify holy people, right? As I said, we're continuing uh, uh, this study in the book of Romans today, and, and chapter 12 here, uh, 12 verses 1 and 2 we'll be looking at in just a second. There's a pretty significant turning point here in, uh, in, the, in the book of Romans. It starts with the word, therefore, and if you've ever uh, taken English class, you know that as you're reading and it's, there's a therefore, you need to look back and see what it's... Therefore, right? And so, uh, so it, it, we we look at this, and actually, some scholars have said that this is the most important. There are many therefores throughout the book of Romans, uh, but but this is the most important therefore in the whole letter. 
just, just to remind you, I know we've been, we've been at, like I said, we've been at this since January, walking through Romans. So uh, you've probably missed a couple sermons here or there. Uh, you've probably not studied up on it and reminded yourself of what we studied back in the third week of January. I don't know. It's prob- you probably are a lot more holy than that. But um, uh, just to remind you, just to help you, uh, in this letter that Paul has written, he's been explaining uh, literally the very foundations of, of what it means to be a Christian, to follow God. And so he's explained to these Christ followers, this church in Rome, how all of this works. How do we follow God? Who is God and who is Jesus and what has he done for us? It's, it's been very theological. It's been very doctrinal up to this point. All these things that we're to believe, that these, these basic fundamental elements of, of, of faith and what it means to, uh, to follow God. Uh, He's talked about uh, how everyone is sinful. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, he's talked about how God has loved us in spite of our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How uh, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We can't save ourselves because we're in sin, but simply by faith and because of God's grace, we can, uh, we can uh, be justified, we can be redeemed, we can be adopted into the family of God. Theologians for centuries have gone to the pages of this letter to, uh, to be kind of a ground zero, so to speak, of, of who God is, what Jesus has done, who is the Holy Spirit and how does he work, how can we be saved. All of those things are, are included in this, in this letter. Most recently, uh, we've, we've looked at chapters 9 through 11 as kind of this, uh, this subset within this letter. So we, we walked through, and I think it was Easter Sunday, we kind of came to a climax at the end of chapter 8, and how we said that nothing can separate us from the, from the love of God, nothing at all, and that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And then uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, Paul kind of goes into this, this agony of, yeah, all this is true for everybody, but the Jews, he's, Paul says, my people, the Jews, aren't aren't believing this. They, they haven't come to the place where Jesus, they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so, so Paul's in anguish over this and he wants to convince them that, that Jesus came for everyone, not just, uh, not just the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but everyone. And he ends that section at the end of chapter 11 with this hymn, uh, a, a big hymn of the church, a, a hymn of praise to God, glorifying God for who he is and what he has done in the story of salvation. And that brings us to chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, therefore, and so we look back and see what it's there for and we'd be tempted to just look back at that hymn uh, that, that uh, God is great and because God is great that therefore. but this therefore is more than just looking back to uh, the, the last few verses or even the last chapter but literally looking back to the whole of the letter because of all this stuff that Paul has been talking about because of the foundations of the faith because of everything, all of this because of all of that therefore we must respond, he says. From this point on, the, the letter, and, and we'll see over the next few weeks, the letter gets a lot more instructional and a lot less theological. So in other words, it's because all of this, because we believe all this, because this is our foundation, therefore this is how we respond. This is how we live. This is what it looks like to live this out. And so we start that conversation with verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. Very, very significant verses, very, very, I hesitate to say popular, but uh, many people uh, know what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's dive right into it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper 
worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, everybody, in view of God's mercy. I want to pause right there before we get into it because that's that's hugely significant. Your 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 holy living, uh, our obedience, and again, he's going to give us all these instructions in in uh, from chapter twelve on. Uh, all of this living for God, all that we're doing is in view of. It's a response to God's grace and mercy and all that He's done for you. Sometimes I think we, we, we see God as trying to, to uh, kill our joy, so to speak, by giving us instructions and expecting obedience and, and we gotta do this and this and this and don't do this, this and this and, and oh, I don't know that I can, and, and, uh, that's not what it is at all. Uh, God is offering us a life that, as it refers to in chapter, in verse two there, it's good, pleasing, and perfect. It's a, it's an amazing, wonderful life with God. So how could we even think about not following God in light of all that He has done? In other words, always keep God's mercy in view. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, always keep God's mercy in view. It's the context in which we live. God's mercy, God's grace, what he has done for us. It's, we, we can't live in any other place. It's the air that we breathe. It's the life that we live in view of God's mercy. So everything that comes after this is in the context, in it living in God's grace. And, and so as we do that, as we keep God's mercy in view, we have to make sure that our response is not just on the surface, that we're just walking through some religious routines or practices, but that it's, it's from our soul. Paul's, what Paul's describing here in these verses is what he calls true and proper worship. Uh, in, in another translation, it says, your, this is your spiritual act of worship. It's, it's real. It's not fake. It's, it's deep. It's not shallow. It's meaningful. It's not insignificant. This is true and proper worship in view of, in response to all of God's mercy. So with all that being said, we've got this whole letter and describing God's grace for us, even in the midst of our sin. And, and so therefore, in view of all that, we need to have this soul, this, this, this response that lives within and comes out of our soul. So what does that look like? What, it, what does it mean? How do we do that? Paul describes it with, well, he describes it with an oxymoron. Living sacrifice. We've done a lot of English already. We've been spelling this morning. We've been thereforeing this morning. And now we're going to learn about what an oxymoron is. I, I uh, found this video online that I think does a whole lot better job explaining that than I could ever do. So let's, uh, let's watch this. Oxymorons are little gems of the English language. You take two things that contradict each other, you put them together, and awful, good, awfully good. Sure, that makes sense. Phrases like act naturally, almost exactly, alone, together, clearly misunderstood, definite, maybe, exact, estimate, found, missing, genuine, imitation, good, grief, passive, aggressive, peace, force, pretty, ugly, resident, alien, sweet, tart, icy, hot. I need to take a breath. <gasps> Instant classic, continuing resolution, nothing much, pronounced silence, loosely packed, liquid gas, awfully good, hopelessly optimistic, fresh frozen, deliberately thoughtless, original copy, only choice, current history, and rolling stop. Are you starting to get the idea? The more opposite the words seem, the better the oxymoron. 
But be careful, because you can have two opposite-sounding words that don't qualify because of the way that they're used. Like still moving. Still, in this case, means continuous, not motionless. And even odds won't work either, because even means equivalent, and odds refers to chance, not even an odd like the numbers. But that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of them out there for you to use, like same difference, silent scream, small crowd, sweet sorrow, synthetic natural gas, terribly pleased, tight slacks, jumbo shrimp, working vacation, living dead, incorrect facts, intentional accident, freezer burn, and sanitary landfill. Now, not everything labeled oxymoron is an oxymoron. People trying to be funny will say things like, military intelligence is an oxymoron. The same thing goes for honest politician, business ethics, and Microsoft works. It's a nice try, but it just can't hold a candle to numb feeling. How can you have a numb feeling? You can't, it's numb. Real oxymorons have that subtle ring to them, that certain something that makes you say, what? The super cool part is that technically they're not incorrect, so you can use them all the time and you'll never look dumb. Even the word oxymoron is an oxymoron. Yeah, no kidding. In Greek, oxys means sharp or pointed and moros means dull or foolish. So it literally comes out sharp dullness. Awesome. You didn't know all that, did you? See? So oxymoron, two words that don't go together, that go together. Like living sacrifice. That oxymoron is in the center. It's the center of what it means, uh, of, of what our response should be to God in view of his mercy. Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Now, living sacrifice, we don't have that, uh, all the, the sacrificial stuff in our, in our heads and in our history like Paul would have as a, as a, uh, growing up as a good Jew in that culture. Uh, he would have had that, that Old Testament sacrificial system in mind and, uh, and these, uh, some of these folks in this church would have, would have known this as well. Specifically, as he's talking about this living sacrifice, he's actually referring to what the, what the law re- referred to as a whole burnt offering. It's described in the, in the Jewish law several different places in, uh, in uh, uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, there are many sacrifices described in the, in the book of the law uh, that, that were put on the altar, uh, but then the priest took them off of the altar when they were just pink enough but not quite... Uh, I don't know if they really eyeballed it that way. Some of them probably did. But literally, a lot of the sacrifices that were offered were actually offered and burned. And then the, the, uh, the priests were supposed to take those things off the altar. And that was part of their pay. That was part of their uh, uh, pay for service in the temple. It's what they did. It's, it's how they were, uh, how they, they, they lived. And so, but, but this sacrifice is a little bit different than that because there were some sacrifices. The whole burnt offering was, was not just something that was put on there until it had just a little bit of pink so you could put the the A1 sauce on it and enjoy it real well. This was a perfectly good animal that was brought to God as an expression of devotion and it was put on the fire until it was completely consumed. Burnt to a crisp, we might call it. And yet it's described, as it talks about in the Old Testament, in the, in the law, it's described uh, this, this whole burnt offering is a, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Burnt to a crisp and an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Maybe that's kind of an oxymoron, right? But uh, And some of you are, uh, guys, you're probably in charge of dinner today. Hopefully you didn't put it in the oven and now you're hoping that it doesn't turn into a whole burnt offering that you're going to offer your... 
Well, that's the Old Testament sacrificial system, that, that they would bring these animals and they would offer them to God, uh, but that wasn't a living sacrifice, that was a completely dead sacrifice. So what does it mean for us, now that Jesus has come, now that, now that Jesus has become the, uh, the, the sacrifice for our sin, what does it mean for us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? I, I love the way the message paraphrases these, uh, these two verses, and, and I think it really helps us to understand this. Uh, uh, so Romans chapter one, uh, 12, verses 1 and 2 in the message says, Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. What, what is a living sacrifice? Oh, take, go ahead and go to that uh, next, uh, there we go. Uh, take, take your everyday ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice? We're giving our whole lives to God. Your, your everyday, ordinary, sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, you're taking your life and saying, God, my life is yours. Many times we offer things to God or we dedicate certain things to God. Money, time, possessions. Uh, it, many times we've, we've stood here many times and dedicated children, our uh, children to the Lord, right? Uh, many times we offer things to God, but it's one thing to offer my things to God. It's quite another thing to offer myself to God, right? I don't know if you've, you've noticed or not or thought about it much, but uh, the motivations that prompt us to come to Christ, uh, at least initially, the things that, that draw us to faith, uh, are usually our, our motivations are usually for ourselves, kind of turned in on what we can get. I don't know that I want to call them selfish, but, but it's certainly focused on how do I benefit from this whole uh, God relationship thing. And so people commit their lives to, to Jesus so that they can, I mean, just get honest, so they can escape hell, right? Or uh, so that they can gain eternal life, so that they can put their lives back together, so that they can have peace and hope and, and all the things that come with that. But, but our focus is on ourselves. Those are great motivations, and, and those are important things, and they are certainly huge benefits. But, but we're motivated many times by what we can get from God. As we mature in our faith, however... And it's true in many relationships, right? As we mature in our faith, as we grow closer to God, it becomes less about what we get for ourselves and more about how much we can offer ourselves in service to God. We start this walk with God for what we can get, but the natural progression is grown into a spirit of sacrifice, offering our everyday, ordinary lives for God's use. It's a, it's a complete sacrifice. We give everything to him. But that can kind of seem overwhelming a little bit. How, how in the world, why would I want to, how, how could I possibly sacrifice everything to God? Remember his mercy? <laughs> Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. 
keeping God's mercy in view, how can we do anything less but offer everything that we are to God? That's true and proper worship. It's not just outward lip service. It's not just walking through the motions. Uh, I've heard the story of a, of a great and brutal general, Otto the Conqueror. Uh, he was out so busy many, many years ago. He was so busy conquering new territory for his country that he had no time to find a wife. And so uh, some of his advisors were concerned about that, that he had not married. And so they, they found a wife for him in the land across the sea. Sophia was her name. This would not only give Otto the possibility of, uh, of an heir, but it would also bring political unity to the countries. And so, so Otto the Conqueror went across the sea with, with 500 of his best warriors in order to, uh, to uh, win the hand of Sophia. When they arrived, they found out that Sophia's family were, were Christian. And they required that anyone who would desire Sophia's hand would, uh, would also be baptized into the faith. Otto agreed and said, certainly I can, I can get wet for you. Sure. That's great. I can, can be baptized. And the 500 soldiers also said, yes, we'll jump right in and we'll do that as well. Uh, but they found out also that, uh, that Sophia's family, uh, were gentle and peace loving. People and, uh, and, and converts to Christianity could not be professional soldiers. What were they to do? The next day, Otto and his men showed up and presented themselves to the priest and said, we are ready to be baptized. And they marched down into the water, all 501 of them. But as the uh, priest led uh, the, uh, the baptism and, uh, and all 500 began to sink down in the water, they held their hands holding their swords up high. And so onlookers saw a, uh, a, a lake filled with this army with, uh, with dry arms and swords. And so they were baptized, but not their fighting selves. They, they were baptized except for their swords and their fighting arms. That's obviously not a picture of a living sacrifice, right? That's a partial sacrifice. That's, I'm going to go through the motions of this in order to get what I want. That's not a living sacrifice before God. A sacrifice is complete. It's that, that whole burnt offering on the altar. Uh, it's, it's, it's complete. God gets all of me. This sacrifice is described uh, uh, three different ways here in, in verse 1. It's living, we've talked about that that, that, that we're living this out. It's not like these bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament, but we're expected to keep on living out our commitment to God. We give him everything, but then he lives through us. It's a living sacrifice, it's a holy sacrifice, and it's pleasing to God. Holy here means belonging to God. So we've, been, we've, we've changed ownership, but now God is in control of our lives. And it's pleasing to God. It's, it's literally God's desire for us that we, we be, uh, conformed in the image of His Son, uh, Romans chapter 8 says. And so as we do that and we offer ourselves to God, it's, it's pleasing to Him. There's a church word we probably don't use much of anywhere else, um, and probably don't even use it much in church. It's, it's the word consecration. Uh, I consecrate myself to God. It's another word for this, this whole concept of a living sacrifice, of offering myself completely to God. I'm consecrating, not concentrating, consecrating myself to God. You see, you can't make yourself holy, but you can give yourself to God so he can make you holy. Consecration is what we do. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Transformation is what God does in us. So consecration is what we do, transformation is what God does in us. 
Verse 2 talks about uh, being conformed, not being conformed or influenced by the world around us. In one translation, it says, uh, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Uh, in the message there we read, it says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Uh, I think perhaps this happens more than we want to admit. To the extent that you are fitting into the culture around you, you are limiting the work of God through you. To the extent that you are fitting into the culture around you, you are limiting the work of God through you. Now, I don't mean that you should try to uh, not identify with people or come up alongside them. I mean, Paul said, I became all things to all people so that I could win some. He was uh, deeply entrenched in the culture, but it's all about influence, right? Uh, I mean, we shouldn't be influenced by the, the way that people without God view life and live life. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed it's interesting, confirmation, transformation, conforming, uh, transforming. Neither one of those things are things that we do. We're simply uh, allowing those things, right? If, if we're being conformed, it's because we're allowing the influences around us to shape us more like sin and less like God. If, if we're being transformed, then it's because we have offered our very lives as a sacrifice to God and he changes us from the inside out. There are, there are several Greek words uh, for this whole concept of transformation. Uh, the, the, the word that Paul chose here, you're going to have to put up on the screen because I can't say it. Uh, it says, uh, yeah, meta, meta, <laughs> right? It's the word that we get our word, metamorphosis. And it's that picture of a, uh, of a slimy worm turning into a beautiful butterfly. And that's the picture that Paul used. He had many different options for transformation. He chose this one to give us a picture to describe the change that takes place in our lives when we offer ourselves completely to God. It's not just an, an outward thing. It's not just a half-baked pseudo-going-through-the-motions religious kind of thing. It's a change. And it's not just a change in appearance or behavior. It's, it's literally changing the essence of who we are, just like that, that caterpillar turns into a butterfly, completely different. It's, it's not about acting out a part, it's about being completely different. Dr. William Greathouse says it this way, to be conformed is to fit comfortably within the present age. To be transformed is to be fitted by God for the age to come. I don't want you to get the impression that, the, that all this happens with this one big zap of holiness. That, uh, that, that, that maybe in a service like this, you, you, you feel the, the, the thumb of the Lord in your back, you feel God's spirit, and you say, man, I, 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 need, all, I need to give myself completely to God, and, and I'm going to be a living sacrifice. And, and, and so you come down to the altar, and, and, and all of a sudden, the thunder claps, and kaboom! Now I'm holy, and I'm perfect, and uh, woo! There we go, right? Now, the commitment happens in a moment that we say, God, I, I offer myself, I consecrate myself. The transformation takes the rest of our lives. We allow God access to us, and then he continues to transform us throughout our lives, continuing to make us holy. We stay away from the influences of our culture. We're not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. We're transformed as God renews us. As I think about 
what that means then. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be conformed. I'm going to be let God transform me. Well, what does that look like? Let's just get practical about it. What does that look like? Okay, well, let's make a list. I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do this. And we're, all of a sudden, we're right back there real easy if we're not careful. What does it look like to be holy, to not conform but be transformed? I think it helps us to think about not that we're not holy from, but holy to. Let me, let me unpack that. Am I holy from or holy to? To be holy means separate, set apart. God has set us, set us apart to be His. Uh, and, and so most of the time we focus on what we're set apart from. I don't do that. I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do, right? So I'm, I've got this list and that's just, just where I'm at. I'm set apart from the world. That's those sinful, that sinful world over there. I'm set apart. Romans 12 is focusing a whole lot less on what we're set apart from and a whole lot more on what we're set apart to, who we're set apart to. Paul challenges us here to fix our attention on God. He doesn't list a bunch of things to avoid. Certainly there are things to avoid. Certainly there, there, there are things that, that the people of God don't do. Of course that's, that's true. But our focus isn't so much on, on all the stuff we don't do. Uh, our focus instead is on uh, what or who uh, we're, we're becoming more like. We're not just set apart from sin. We're set apart to God. Someone once said holiness as defined as, quote, separation from a set of external behaviors or possessions is at best healthy self-discipline and at its worst, at its worst, it is self-righteousness. Our focus cannot be on all the stuff that we think we're missing out on or all the stuff that we're avoiding and, and so I'm holier than you because I don't do. Instead, we're just focused completely, uh, fixing our attention on, on God and the abundant life with Christ that we get to get in on. Uh, God has made us new creations. He is transforming us. He, he has a plan for your life, a good, pleasing, and perfect plan. Plan for, for the world and a plan for how your life fits into that plan for the world. It starts with submitting to Him every aspect of our lives, a living sacrifice. And as you live day to day with him, focused on him, you will discover God's plans for you, his good, pleasing, and perfect plans. Uh, in the summer before my uh, senior year of college, I was engaged to Rebecca. Don't, uh, don't, don't spread anything around. We, but we spent the summer uh, half a world away from each other, basically. She was on a mission team serving in Northern California. I was, uh, I was serving in Berlin, Germany. So two and a half months, uh, engaged, separated. We wrote letters and they didn't, uh, half of them didn't get delivered till after we got back. And, and we, you know, back, that was back in the day when you like had to punch in numbers and pay exorbitant amount of dollars for long distance calls and all those kinds of things. You know, we're old. So that's what, that's what that means. But, um, I can remember that summer reading a, reaching a critical juncture with God as it, as it related to my relationship with Rebecca. In essence, and I don't know whether I verbalized this, but in essence, in looking back and reflecting on it, where I had come to basically was uh, that that God can have everything in my life except that relationship. Because because uh, if I'm going to follow God, it's going to mean she's coming with me. And God, you've got you to make this all happen because that's the way I've got it planned and that's what needs to happen. That's going to make me happy and we've got to do it this way. In essence, I was... You know, I was, I remember late nights praying and wrestling with God and, and, uh, you can have everything as long as she's there. 
in essence, seeking control of, of that, right? Uh, I had to come to the place, which I did, had to come to the place of complete surrender. God, you can have my life, all of my life, even relationships, even that relationship, my future, my dreams, everything, it's, it's yours, and I trust you. And, and you know what's, what's cool about that? In looking back, it was pretty, uh, you know, stressful at the time. But, but you know what I found out? God is for me. We've heard that somewhere before in all of this, right? Nothing separates us from the love of God. God doesn't want to, didn't want to just yank that relationship uh, uh, from, from under my feet and, and knock me for a loop and say, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. God is for me and he loves me. Uh, Married 24 years next month. I think it's working out. I think it's, it's okay. God wasn't about stealing my joy. That's not what he does. He just wanted me to be at the place of being a living sacrifice, a place of true and proper worship. Why? Well, in view of his mercy. That's why. So today... I. I don't know if there's anything that you might be wrestling with or, or, or uh, uh, maybe you've given God certain things, but there's certain other things that, that you're trying to keep over here. And maybe you really haven't thought about it much. That's just kind of where you've gotten to. Maybe you can't really describe your life as a life of, of true and proper worship. Maybe it's all kind of this surface stuff and, and, uh, and I'm just walking through the motions of religion, so to speak. Maybe, uh, maybe you're, you're thinking, well, God, I'm going to follow you, but it's going to mean that this, all this has to happen too. And if it doesn't, you know, I, I don't know. Have you taken your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and placed it all before God as an offering? It's true and proper worship. Is he transforming you? Or are you fitting into the world without even noticing? Following Jesus isn't about what you can't do. It's about who you're living for.